into one, uh, your Bible's New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One Corinthians chapter fifteen. And we're going to start at verse seventeen. Those of you who were here about a month ago, we did uh, the first, I believe, twenty verses. Tonight we're going to look at a few verses and not the whole chapter of fifteen. Dave and I were praying before everybody got here, and one of the things that Dave had prayed about, or he just used as an analogy, was the change, the beautiful change in the season right now. And as he was praying, I was just thinking, as I prepared the message too, and it just sort of like came along with the message, was just how much God wants to continually do a change in our lives. Just like the seasons change, God wants to do a new work, I believe, each and every day. That were on this earth. You know, I always think of the Israelites in Egypt and when they were being fed manna and how every day it was a new downpouring of manna. The manna that was there the day before, they couldn't save it and eat it again for it was no good anymore. It was rotten. Except for the Sabbath where they picked up twice as much um, Previous to that, and it carried him through the Sabbath day. And I always think of my, uh, that for you and I, that God's word is something he wants us to be in fresh every day. He's got new manna to feed us with, spiritually speaking. I want to encourage everybody today. Hopefully every time we hear a message from the Lord, it's an encouragement. But I want to encourage everybody today with this message. Today, as most of you know, I'm a public school teacher, grades 7 through 12. So my prep period today, um, I, had a, I have about a half an hour, and I was uh, tweaking up the message for tonight. And the kids, I go into a video, uh, TV video class. So there's kids in there with their teacher, and I'm working on a computer on my side. And they were turning on uh, the TV to go over TV commercials and how to make them. That's the part that they're learning right now. On the TV... I heard this statement. Faith is believing in something with no guarantee. And I said, wow. Isn't that cool that we don't have a faith in something or someone with no guarantee? And it sort of came right along with what we're going to look at tonight. Because we have a faith in someone and we got a guarantee. Some people might say, back at 9-11, that the terrorists who flew the planes into the Trade Center had a tremendous faith. And they did. But they had a faith in something that they didn't see. They had a faith in something they hoped for. And now they know if they were right or wrong. But we have a faith in someone that gave us a guarantee. So I want to look at some of that tonight. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 
We're going to look at verses right now, 17 through 19, and that's pretty much uh, the majority of what we're going to look at. I might go with uh, several verses after that, but that's the main thing. It says in verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. All right, now, last week, last month, the title of the message was LOL. And we talked about the computer. Um, And do you remember what LOL stood for in the computer language? Laugh out loud. And we used that LOL for some different things. For those who have faith in something with no guarantee, a blind faith, LOL can stand for lots of luck. You know, good luck in what you believe in. It's tough to have blind faith. Such a blind faith that you would stake your life on it. As a Christian, we have some neat things that come out of LOL. We have labor of love. Talked about laughing out loud or Lazarus's laugh. That the Bible doesn't talk much about Lazarus, if you remember what happened after Jesus raised him. But I was saying, imagine if he laughed the rest of his life, because what's the worst thing could ever happen to him? Is God already showed that he was in control and raised him from the dead once, and even though he died again, we know that he's with him in heaven. So what could come upon Lazarus that could be of anything of seriousness? Besides the death he already went through. Another thing is love of life. Love in the life that we have in Christ and what he has shown us. Some of the things I want to look at tonight is some of the evidence about Jesus' return from the dead. I want to look at some of that. And some of you might have heard this before. And maybe there's be one thing that we throw in there that you never thought of and That's a good thing. As a coach, I go to a lot of clinics. If I can get one thing out of that clinic, it's worthwhile. Hopefully you get more than one thing out of tonight's Bible study. But I just want to encourage you, listen for something where you are in your walk with the Lord tonight. That'll be something that really uh, pushes you on to a deeper walk with Him. One of the things I want to look at first is the execution of Jesus. And we talked about that last time. We talked about everything he went through. But one of the things that a friend who's not here tonight pointed out to me afterwards, and I think we all know it, but one of the things I left out was besides all the painful torture that Jesus went through, everything he went through for you and I, one of the things that I left out was about the separation from his father. When he cried out, My God, my God, why why hast thou forsaken me? And that separation, he had never been separated from the father. What did that feel like? I think you and I get a little glimpse, just a little bit, a drop, when you or I have turned our back on our father. And when we realize that when we realize the separation that we've caused because over the course of our walk with the Lord, we might have turned away from Him for a period of time. Now, you and I here tonight, we're not 
turning away from Jesus right now. We're sitting at his feet, looking into his word, allowing him to reach out and touch us once again. That's an awesome place to be for you and, and for I. The Quran in Surah 4, 157 to 158, says that Jesus did not die on the cross. When we come in our society today and we hear different candidates that are running for the presidency, anyone speaking to the Lord and they say, well, you know, all roads lead to God or, you know, Allah is the same as the Christian God. No, it doesn't line up if you check out their writings and the biblical writings. The Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus of the Bible, only to be found in the Bible. See, our Jesus died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, is coming back, has poured out his spirit on all the believers in the Jesus that lived on this earth, died, rose from the dead, and is coming back. That's Jesus Christ. There is no other Jesus. There is no other God. So when they say that Allah, or I'm sorry, in the Quran, that Jesus did not die on the cross, already they are differentiating between the Allah of the Quran and our God that we follow. That is huge. We are Christians in a Christ-rejecting nation. We're a minority. Okay? We're the minority. We have to understand that. And we pray that at any service, if there is an unbeliever in that service, we're praying that he's added to the number of believers in Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible. We talked last time about the flogging, about the Passion movie. How it was unbelievable what you saw on the screen, but compared to what Jesus went through, it was nothing. You still could see who the actor was on the screen, but it says that Jesus was marred beyond recognition. He didn't even look like a man. One of the things in the execution of Jesus was the hypovolemic shock that he went through. Was Jesus really dead? Well, hypovolemic shock is a loss of blood. It's a serious critical condition. Most people die just from the scourging, from the flogging. Crucifixion is a death by suffocation that comes as a result of exhaustion that you can no longer push up to try to take that breath. One of the things they did after a period of time was they shattered the shin bones of the criminals so they couldn't push up to take that breath, thus causing that suffocation because they couldn't get air into their lungs. Now, Jesus, what they did, when they got to him, they took a spear and they shoved it between his ribs into his heart, piercing his lungs and his heart. How do we know that? Well, blood came out and water separately. Medically, that's what happens when a person is dead. He was declared dead by multiple experts. 
There are five ancient sources outside the Bible that support the biblical story that Jesus was dead. We don't have to only go to our text. We can look other places. One of the places that we can look at is the mor- a liar makes a bad martyr. A liar makes a bad martyr. There were followers of Jesus that went to their death as a result of believing in Jesus. If they knew what they believed in was a lie, would they still die? I wouldn't. I don't think you would. It's not like the blind faith. This man said he was going to die, raised from the dead. And even though we didn't put that together, remember, they thought about it later after the resurrected Jesus. They remember he had said that while he was living. At the time of the execution and the days that followed, they didn't connect it. They were blinded by their own humanness. But if we saw the risen Jesus, how would that make us live? Well, we know that many of them went to their death. One of the things that also took place, there was immediate early reports that he was resurrected. Didn't happen a hundred years later. It was being circulated days after the resurrection. There was a commotion going on that Jesus had risen from the dead. So time did not go past. We're going to look at that in a, in a couple minutes. The experts concede that the tomb was empty. There's not a question about that. Even his enemies said that the tomb was empty. There were eyewitnesses that saw that Jesus was alive. They saw him alive. He appeared to over 500 men and women during that course of time before he was ascended into heaven. One of the things in the evidence that's crucial for us is the early accounts. The early accounts of the resurrection. They were written right after the resurrection. They didn't have time that 100, 200 years went by that legend was created. The creed of the early church, as you look in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, let's take a look at that. This was the creed of the early church. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And then it goes on to say who he was seen by. But that was the creed, verses 3 and 4. That's what was being preached throughout the area. The eyewitnesses. Within two to eight years after his death, these things were being recorded. So there were people still alive, many people that were still alive, that saw Jesus and could refute or support what was being said 
by his disciples and his apostles. This wasn't something like a hundred years later that was passed down. The people were still living that eyewitnessed Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his walking around, eating, touching, talking with people. It takes a long time for a legend to start. A scholar said that not two generations are enough time for a legend to begin. It takes longer than two generations. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts, and other writings of Paul. And all these other writings that were circulating while contemporaries were still around to challenge them. Second evidence. The empty tomb. Which is the most powerful evidence. Even his enemies said that it was empty. That wasn't the question. There was an empty tomb. The authorities spread the story that the guards were asleep. That the apostles stole the body. And one of the things is, the apostle had no means, no motive, or opportunity to do it. You have to remember the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb, if they allowed the body to be stolen, they would be put to death. I don't need any Dunkin' Donuts coffee or Starbucks coffee to stay awake if I know that my life would end. And if you're a soldier with me as we're guarding the tomb, I'm going to keep making sure you're awake. We're going to stay on each other, stay alert on our watch. Because we don't want to die as a result of this Jewish carpenter who's behind that stone. So it really doesn't fit well with the Roman um, soldiers. Second is, why would a cover story have to be made up if the body was there? Why would they have to say the body was stolen, the apostles took it, if the body was there? They would just say the body's still in the grave. Body was missing. It's somewhere. Otherwise, it would have never been a cover story. They would only make up the stories if he wasn't there. Now, the Roman guards wanted him dead. That was their job. That's what they were ordered to do. The Jewish authorities wanted him to stay dead. Okay? The apostles did not want to die themselves. That's where liars make bad martyrs. What took place to change these men who ran and hid to come out boldly in the very town where Jesus was arrested to proclaim the gospel? And end up dying. What changed? They were fearful before what took place. Something had to happen. Then we have the eyewitnesses. Over 500, they talked to him. They touched him. They ate with him. They were followers. They were skeptics. They were doubters that encountered the risen Jesus. Can you imagine a trial today that had 500 witnesses at it? 
and the outcome of that trial. There's trials today that there's just a couple witnesses. And it helps the jury make a final verdict. Imagine 500 witnesses for the resurrection of Jesus. That's unheard of. There were over 500 witnesses. One of the uh, major atheists has said that it was an hallucination that took place. It was an hallucination. Okay, let's take a look at that for a second. A professor of psychology was asked about this hallucination theory. He said it's not possible. The reason is a hallucination is an individual event. It cannot be shared. A hallucination cannot be shared. I can't say to you, hey, how'd you like my dream that I had last night? It's an individual event. 500 of us having the same hallucination at the same time is a greater miracle than Jesus resurrecting from the dead. Think about it. 500 of us having the same hallucination is really a greater miracle than Jesus being risen from the dead. The body would still be in the grave if it was a hallucination. doesn't go along with the other things that were taking place with the enemies of Jesus. Now, the disciples were depressed. They were going back to their trades. They were going back to their jobs. But then all of a sudden, something happened. They're boldly proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples did not believe or have faith that Jesus rose, but then they saw him. Then they touched him. They ate with him. They proclaimed the truth about him. And some of them died for what they believed. But it's what they saw, not what they hoped for. That is huge for you and for me. Because we've never seen Jesus face to face. We're going back to the historical records and evidence of what took place with the people who within several years after this all took place wrote it down. And then what they lived for and what they died for. You know what Jesus has done in each of your hearts. How he's taken you from being lost to being found. You know the work he's continually doing in your heart all the time. And of course, I'm sure like me, sometimes you don't see it. But at times you look back and say, wow, Lord, thanks for what you've been doing the last few weeks of my life. But we believe that every day we spend with the Lord, it's just like our physical nutrition. We don't know exactly what's going on with the food we ate the last few days, but it's given us nourishment, it's given us strength. If the cross is the payment for our sins, we talked about this last time, the empty tomb is the receipt. It's showing that God was the perfect sacrifice that the Father required to pay for our sins. The payment is of little use if there is not a receipt that it was accepted. 
This is why the resurrection of Jesus was such a prominent theme in the preaching of the early church. Because if it didn't happen, just like now, we're wasting our time. It's of no use. We're to be pitied. The cross was a time of victorious death. The the cross is a time of victorious death. It's a negative triumph. Sin was defeated. But nothing positive was put in its place until the resurrection. The resurrection was the Father's approval of what Jesus did on the cross. If not, Jesus is still in the grave. It's over. The Egyptians, at the end of a huge banquet, used to go around the table with a wooden coffin with a little man in it. And they would walk around the table saying, Time is short. Basically, eat, drink, and be merry because one day this is you. Enjoy your life here. And they had that image imprinted as they walked around in their partying. Well, we have an image too. And that image is an empty tomb with a risen Savior that had eyewitness accounts that collaborated what the Scriptures have said. Now, you and I have the blessing of Genesis to Revelation to see the whole Word of God, the prophecies being fulfilled. We have the promise of seeing Jesus again as we sang face to face. And what a day that will be when we see Jesus face to face. Chuck Spurgeon said this, I suppose, brethren, that we may have persons arise who will doubt whether there was ever such a man as Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte. And when they do, when all reliable history is flung to the winds, then but not till then may they begin to question whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For this historical fact is attested by more witnesses than almost any other fact that stands on record in history, whether sacred or profane. Spurgeon went on to say, By the grace of God, we not only are what we are, but we also remain what we are. We should long ago have ruined ourselves and damned ourselves if Christ had not kept us by His almighty grace. You and I are experiencing His grace right now. Regardless of the type of day we had, right now we can say, as eyewitnesses to one another, all this is happening simply by the grace of God. It's only His doing. It has nothing to do with the person next to you. has nothing to do with me up here. has nothing to do with Dave. It's God's grace that is allowing us to partake of the spiritual banquet table right now. It's all Him. It's all about Him. It's never about anything else. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart. 
and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I was asking Dave about this fellow that we know his son. And I believe the boy's name was Chris. And his dad's name, I'm not sure. I think it was Al Branca or Branca. He was in the Trade Center that went down and he was above the 100th floor. And because of the cell phone, they know that he was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with a captive audience. And I believe there is more people in heaven that were on that floor with Al than would be without Al being there. God gave him grace at a time of tragedy to be able to share the living truth about our living and risen Savior. Al didn't run and scream and say, it's over, what's going on? He had the presence of mind to share the gospel in an inescapable situation. And we have a witness account of someone sharing that on the phone. His wife goes throughout the country sharing that story. Today, we had a lockdown drill. Remember, many of us growing up with the air raid drills? Now they're having lockdown drills. We have, this is a safety prevention week, or every day we're doing something. We're having evacuation drills. Today was a lockdown drill. Um, we have a, lock, a couple more things that are coming this week. But today what we did is everybody had to gather in the cafeteria, and you had to go to your homeroom class. And once we were there, we had to take attendance and make sure all our kids were with us and we had to report anybody missing. And the vice principal said, you know, in case of any kind of biological warfare or uh, warfare chemicals, can you imagine this now? Just think of how things have evolved to the point today where we're talking about chemical warfare or a, uh, a suitcase bomb or whatever with our kids today. But you know what hit me today was the thing with Al in the Trade Center. And I said, here we're, we have a smaller public school, but we had about 450 kids, that's our total school, in the cafeteria. And I'm saying, wow, Lord, you imagine the captive audience we would have for the gospel of Jesus Christ if, God forbid, anything tragic like that came down the pike. It's heavy, but what an opportunity for souls to be saved. We need to be ready, right, everybody? We need to be ready in season and out of season for everything that happens. It doesn't have to have to do with terrorism. It's just the lives we live every day. Um, Tommy Q, I prayed for. He's one of my runner's dads. He thinks he has lung cancer because he was coughing up blood. So far, every test that he has had, they haven't found anything. He's going for a second opinion. So, you know, our prayer is that this man comes to the Lord as a result of this. 
But the world has such negative, right away they go to the worst, where we can look for Jesus in the midst of cancer, terrorism, anything. And that's our hope. But it's not a hope based on blind faith. We have evidence to support our feelings. And that's awesome. That's an awesome thing. And I go to the terrorist. They know today whether they were right or wrong. They were willing to die for something they were not sure of, even though they had faith in it. Would they have died if they knew what was on the side of eternity? I don't think so. Well, we know what's on the side of eternity because our Jesus came back from the grave. He gives us the evidence of where we're going. Let's look at a couple things uh, before I close. Back in 1 Corinthians, verse 20 I want to look at. And this is pretty cool. What we're going to look at right now and close on. Verses 20 to 23. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Firstfruits. Fallen asleep. I love that term in the Bible. Fallen asleep. The world sees it as death. Christians see it as fallen asleep. Hopefully we all fell asleep last night. And you know what happens when you fall asleep? You wake up. It's not an end in itself. Here these people who are Christians fall asleep and they wake up in the presence of Jesus. How cool is that? I woke up this morning. I had to get into the shower. I had to go to work. I had to rush around. Hustle and bustle. I had to shove down my lunch. It would cool to wake up in the presence of Jesus today. Wow, that have been pretty neat. First fruits. In the Greek, the word is used for the offering of first fruits in the harvest. The secular use is a word that's used for an entrance fee. Never knew this till I studied this passage today. Secular use, it's an entrance fee. For a spiritual user, what the Jewish people did is they would bring the first fruits of their crop to the Lord. Now, Jesus was the first fruit of our resurrection in two senses. In the Old Testament, the offering of the first fruits, they brought one sheaf of grain to represent and anticipate the rest of the harvest. And that's in Leviticus 23, 9 to 14, if you're taking notes. Leviticus 23, 9 to 14. The resurrection of Jesus represents your resurrection and my resurrection. 
Romans 6, 5 says, If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And that's Romans 6, 5 again. The resurrection of Jesus also anticipates our resurrection. Because we will be raised with a body like his. As in the first fruits offered to God, the Jews were assured of God's blessings on the whole harvest. So by the resurrection of Christ, our resurrection is ensured. God gives us a physical example through the harvest of what's going to spiritually take place so we can understand it. The Feast of First Fruits was observed on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. Remember the Passover? During the Egyptian times, the blood, right, from the innocent lamb on the doorpost. Jesus died on the Passover. He was the Lamb of God, shed his blood for us. That anybody who enters that house or allows Jesus to enter your heart, is covered in the blood, okay? Jesus rose on the dead, from the dead, on the exact day of the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. The offering at the Feast of the First Fruits was a bloodless grain offering. They brought that wheat, remember? They didn't bring blood. The day after the Passover, they brought the sheath to lay it down. There was no atoning sacrifice. Why? Because the Passover lamb had been slaughtered. This corresponds perfectly to the resurrection of Jesus. Because his death ended the need for any further sacrifice. He provided himself as a perfect and complete atonement. Now, remember the secular meaning? That entrance fee? He is our entrance fee to the resurrection. Jesus paid our admission to the resurrection. He was our entrance fee. The secular uh, usage of that word first fruits in the Greek is entrance fee. He paid the price. If I pay the price for my daughter at Great Adventure, she doesn't have to worry about paying for anything. She just walks right in. Her ticket is punched. That's her guarantee that she can get in. Now, you and I have the stamp of the Holy Spirit on us as a down payment. For what is coming. Can you be here tonight without the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? If he led you here and you haven't received the risen Savior into your heart. That is God's grace that got you to the point of receiving him. And we're going to say a prayer in a minute for anybody who may never have done that. But for those of you who have taken Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
right now, as we said before, this is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working through the grace of God in our lives. That's awesome. That's a good thing. That's a minority thing, but it's a good thing. Labor of love. Let's turn to the end of chapter 15, where it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You don't have a labor of loss. Because your labor and my labor in the Lord should be based on total love. For what Jesus did for us by shedding his blood, going to the grave, rising, giving us new life, filling us with his Holy Spirit, we now get to go out with the same love that God showed us and extend that to other people. That's a true labor of love. Our labor is not in vain when it's done for Jesus Christ. We might not always see the result of our labor, right, for Jesus. But our labor is not in the results. Our labor is for the Lord. Not for ourselves, not for the results of what's happening as we're doing something for Jesus. But we trust a risen Savior that said His word will not return void. And one day, if it's not on this earth, it'll be in heaven where we will see and reap the results of our labor of love for Him. So we can laugh in Jesus. We can labor in love for Jesus. We can love life as a result of Jesus. It has nothing to do with lots of luck. There's the evidence that we looked at briefly tonight. That it's an evidence that is based and it's a guarantee. You've got a guarantee from God himself that everything he said was true. And he backed it up with his life, with his death, with his resurrection, and with his stamp of putting the Holy Spirit in each of you. Let's pray. Father, we...